Greetings, errants, glitches, breakaways, thought criminals, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever simulacrum we find ourselves navigating at the moment. You are about to set sail on another free first-hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For a measly five dead presidents per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just click the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes below to create the timeline that will set it all in motion. It's suspiciously simple, altogether painless, and just might inspire feelings of bliss and or lingering euphoria. So, without further ado, let the conversations begin! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. There are some conversations that render any attempted introduction to them futile, if you ever have the opportunity to introduce a conversation, that is. Hunter and I went into this one not having the slightest idea of what would come of it. I can only say that today's guest, sci-fi writer, intern of the Mystic Arts, tinfoil beret wearer, and author of the Open Sanctum Substack, Wayne Mathias, was a well-rounded gentleman who was stimulating to converse with and refreshingly open-minded and good-humored. The conversation just started. I uh, I grew up in, I was born in West Covina, California, and my father was a professional wrestler, and so I lived all over the United States. But when I was, oh geez, kind of... Uh, early elementary school we moved to Kansas to Kansas City and lived there for about 10 12 years and then uh, as I got older I traveled around a lot more and then was living in California when I reconnected met Chris and uh, then I came back here I moved here from California interesting yeah that's I've quite always a been a mid- midwesterner yes uh-huh. That's wild. Would you say that's yeah. quite a change? That's quite a change, yeah. Well, I mean, because uh, that means you do know the 
between city and country living. <laughs> and that's important because I think that's one of the divides in our culture. And it isn't just a left and a right thing. It's actually city and country. And uh, it, I'm sorry to say that, you know, it probably do people a lot of good to have experience of both environments. And uh, I did after I went to college. Well, when I went to college, I was in Sonoma County, which is up north of mm -hmm. San Francisco. Then I lived in some other places like Arizona. And uh, I would say that, you know, I actually feel more at home in small towns. Cities are kind of isolating, you know, you know just uh, in general. Uh, I've gotten good at solitude, so it doesn't bother me quite so much. But earlier in my life, it definitely, I, I, um, I think I had more issues with loneliness back then than I do now. And uh, thank goodness, because I mean, the last few years, especially 2020 to 21, were pretty rough. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and uh, I honestly don't know if we're ever going back. It, was there ever a normal to begin with that we're? It's so funny that you mentioned that, Wayne, because Chris and I were actually just talking about this yes. right before we got on mm -hmm. the show. Uh, I Ooh. have I had a very different experience. I lived in New York for 10 years and I mm -hmm. was quite charmed and amazed at how in the city I found a community that was extremely close knit and even commuting, uh, I would see the same people on the train every day. And I had my bodega uh, that I went to and I had, you know, they extended me credit sometimes when I didn't have cash on me. So I had very much a small mm. town experience living in New York City. And part of me thinks that there was more of a forgivingness of uh, people's um, plights or their situations in a big city mm. compared to mm. a small town where people tend to be more suspicious if you are a newbie and an outlier. Mm. They don't really know who you are. So it takes some people in small towns a little bit longer to accept new people where in New York it's so transient. You're used to seeing uh, lots of people uh, flowing in and out of the city. Yeah, yeah, I would say that it's a, it's a very mixed bag. Certainly, um, uh, one advantage of the city is that, in general, is that you do get exposed to more variety, and then um, and the difficulty can come in if people develop a sense of superiority. Totally, of, you know, feeling more sophisticated, for instance, which sometimes you get that with and. Uh, and that goes in with our, our class divisions, which yes. I think are not really acknowledged in yeah. this culture. They are more so in other countries mm -hmm. where they're much, you know, in Britain, for instance, they're much more aware of class distinctions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're, you know, it's like this cross they have to bear. They don't, nobody really likes it. I mean, maybe it sort of works to the advantage of the, uh, let's say the owning class, mm -hmm. even they're not really happy. I mean, if you've known uh, rich people, they're really, they, they might have all kinds of goodies, but they're not really necessarily better off. Agreed. Um, and, uh, um, and indeed, you know, 
part of the part of what makes dystopia what it is is that even the people who are running things aren't really getting true happiness. They're mm-hmm. just, you know, they're, exactly. they're just, and, and, they're, and it just, and then unfortunately it just spills over their, mm-hmm. their, the control trips just make more people miserable. That's yeah. so, um, the iron, irony here is that we're, where I'm at right now, uh, is, uh, this is like the heartland of cyberpunk dystopia mm. and, uh, all the, the oligarchs are here, you mm-hmm. know, Elon Musk. I don't know if he still lives here, but his headquarters is just that away. Mm-hmm. You only have to go about a mile and you're right in the thick of downtown. And it the mood changes very dramatically once you get... If you, Do you know uh, San Francisco's geography, the layout? Yes, yes. very well. Yeah, because I don't think you can... I don't know if you can even see it from here because the light balance the camera... Mm-hmm. tends to white out as yeah. you mm-hmm. look out the window. But the, mm-hmm. the Transamerica ter- uh, Pyramid and downtown, it's all that way. Nice. Just, I could just walk right down the street, which is, you know, this is pretty decent. Uh, I don't know how long I'll get to live here. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, I've been here after I've been, out, when I uh, came back, that was uh, to, to live and work here. I was about about 20 years ago. And prior to that, I was in uh, Santa Monica mm. uh, when I was, you know, in my showbiz period. Uh, I was actually an actor in film and TV um, and trying to break in as a screenwriter. Um, and in fact, most of my writing for the last 20, actually 25, almost 30 years now, it's been screenplays mainly. So I've only recently switched to uh, regular uh, narrative, like short stories. And it, the one thing I'm working on right now could turn into a novel. It depends upon, you know, I'm trying to start out small because this isn't relatively new to me. Sure. Mm-hmm. Get the hang of it. Mm-hmm. And, but at least the ideas are worked out because this is actually the story, the Reality Benders is a prequel to a screenplay that I wrote in 2016 called Epiphany. Mm. And uh, that, in in hindsight, uh, I would say that that was an example of science fiction that was kind of prescient. I wasn't, you know, back in those days, talk about how different the world was. This was before Donald Trump was even taken seriously as a candidate. Can you imagine just how long <laughs> that feels like a long time ago, <laughs> it does. doesn't it? Pre-Donald, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And at the time, I was actually my um, scenario, which is near future, could have been. I, I was thinking about uh, just you know a few years down the road, and indeed, a lot of the stuff. The, the, the social divisions, the, the tendency towards extremism on all sides has seems to have come to pass, but not in quite the way that is in, in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is happening in Epiphany and Reality Benders could be considered the, the universe next door, mm-hmm. not the one that I, I, not what I hope we will experience, just another version, let's say, and for entertainment purposes, you know, it has to, I don't want it to be uh, too hopeless. It's just going to be a different kind of dystopia. And 
then the the uh, the thing that I hope will distinguish this this these uh, stories is that I'll eventually find a way out of dystopia, and uh, hopefully in a way that people can believe in and possibly even draw hope from. Uh, certainly, uh, you, I don't know if you and the people that you know have had a, a kind of intuition that something big is coming soon. So you know, there's a there's a sense of it, uh, you know I'm not saying necessarily impending doom, but yeah, certainly sure. uh, there's a sense that that things are coming to a head, and uh, that uh, we could be facing if not an um, at very least, we're kind of like an end of empire. Uh, the end of empire phase is not the same thing as an end of civilization phase. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't exclude the end of civilization scenario. There's mm -hmm. things that have, seem to be global, not simply national, going mm -hmm. on here. And, yeah. and, uh, when I when and and in the screenplays that I write. Um, and in the story I'm writing now, there's always this, there's this um, undercurrent of what you might call the the, the hidden world, the, the the world that's behind the curtain. And uh, people might have conspiracy theories about this. I've been immersed in all the same stuff that you know, uh, the, even before the X Files became a thing. Mm -hmm. There was like this entire subculture that was. Um, developing in the background for decades. And, totally. Uh, that that's the reason why X Files was a hit, because that mm -hmm. that subculture already existed. Totally. And this we were totally primed for it. X, mm -hmm. And uh, the um, the interesting thing is that that in recent in the recent decades, and when I say recent, I mean in the last thirty years at least. Uh, mm -hmm. Take the long view, even though I'm not that old. Um, I take the view that that uh, among the social divisions that seem to characterize our era is that the so-called left has uh, gave up on conspiracy theory quite a while ago. Totally. Whereas, whereas the right, the so-called right, seems to still have a keen interest in it. Exactly. And, and I ask myself, why is that? And I suspect that during the 60s, uh, when Sean F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy were all assassinated, it was such a traumatic shock to the entire public. And that was probably the last time that people on the left and the right were willing to consider conspiracy theories. They took that you know, there's plenty of people, people that I knew who, um, you know, there's a one fellow who's passed away, unfortunately. He was really seriously interested in JFK assassination theories his entire life. And uh, that was, and the fact that nothing came of it, that there was no closure, that nobody totally. who was responsible was ever brought to justice. I think that kind of broke everyone's brain. They just couldn't totally. handle it more. That's my theory you, anyway. You, oh, ha yeah. you have just freaked me out because as you were talking, I feel like we did like a mind meld. 
I I think oh. that at that point th- we could put a pin in history, and that's what really broke America's heart was when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah. And you can kind of yeah. dial that forward to two thousand and one. And that was the next moment that really broke this country apart. Mm. And I and I feel like mm. there there are traumatic moments that we can look throughout our history that have happened that it becomes this cognitive dissonance where the country becomes bifurcated and there's two different yeah, tracks yeah. that the country has gone on. And it seemed like 2001 was another one of those moments. I was actually living in Los Angeles when that happened, Main Street, Santa Monica, at Ashland and Main Street. And you kind of saw that happening there where people recognized the world that we lived in pre-2001 was never going to be the same. Mm, mm. Yeah, yes, I remember it well, too, because uh, certainly uh, people reacted. That was the, the intensity of the reaction made, got, gave me the feeling very early on that there was some kind of psyop going on. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Yeah. Certain people picked up immediately, almost on the first day, that something was fishy about this, the way things were unfolding. It was almost too neat. Mm-hmm. Everything, you know, these, the passports being found and the culprits being fingered almost immediately. And then all of the wheels started turning like, oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. We're off to war again. Okay. So that was, yep. it, it was just, uh, and, and indeed there, there were so many things about the, the nature of the event. It was almost like a, um, what I would call um, trauma-based mind control en masse. Totally. Mm-hmm. For sure. Totally. See, if we talk about, you know, talk about things in terms of, I, I did a, a little series in my blog about the uh, mind control, uh, all the different techniques in the research projects. Everybody knows about MK Ultra, of course, mm-hmm. but by honestly, by now we should come up with a new term because historically speaking, MK Ultra is boomer mind control. Okay. That dates back to the, <laughs> 50s and 60s. That's Sputnik yep, yep. era. Okay, mm-hmm. we're way, way beyond those days. You know, with Dr. Delgado with his remote control. You probably did. Uh, you know about Delgado and those brain implants? That was very old school. You know, with analog tech. Yes, yes. The, yeah. the, the, yeah. the remote control stopping the bull. Yes. Yeah, and uh, we're generations beyond that now. And it, it, the, one of the reasons I, I put this, uh, this series on mind control in the blog is because I, had, I was doing research uh, for the stories I'm writing. Because I, I figured, okay, things must have moved along. What mm-hmm. would be plausible to put into a near future scenario, taking into account what's mm-hmm. possible? And it turned out uh, there's a lot going on. And, and it's, a lot of it's out in the open, too. It's not even as hidden as it was back in, the, in the, uh, the days when people were getting dosed with LSD without their knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's different than that now because now we have um, 
brain research for ostensibly very noble purposes to, mm -hmm. you know, cure diseases and make the, you know, make crippled people walk again, all these things that, you know, are perfectly legitimate. And at the same time, they also have other applications. It's impossible not to notice that if you are able to control parts of the brain, and then you're opening the possibility of other types of control. And it's just a question of who's got the control, who's, uh, and if you've got, if you've got projects where, um, where DARPA is a major investor, well, that should be a signal. I mean, exactly. that ought to be a flag, you know, it's, and it's, I think that the CIA is no longer uh, as directly involved after what happened there. Got, they got exposed in the seventies. And that, I think mm -hmm. after that, they, it's probably safer to let DARPA handle that stuff. They're already, those are scientists anyway. They ought to be, uh, and they should make it look legitimate so that, yeah. And, uh, well, now it's tech companies. Now it's Apple. Yeah. Now it's Meta. Yeah. Now, you know, so these companies, they, I would say that they're probably the primary contract uh, holders for DARPA, you know, so that now they don't need yeah. to use, they, they're using EMFs, they're using the cell phone. Mm -hmm. People are, are basically handing their sovereignty over to governments you know, just for likes. And pharmaceutical companies who are mm. taking it on a chemical, physical yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if how, how much of that, uh, the mind control series that you read, because it goes into uh, the different tracks of research <laughs> and how the, these intersect with um, high tech research into computers and AI, because they are, they're all related, mm -hmm. especially because the vast amounts of data that have to be processed in brain research can only be done with extremely advanced computers that run much faster than the ones that we have today. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the two tracks are feeding each other. There's a synergy involved where, and if you get faster computers helping the brain research, the brain research unlocks new ways of designing computers because uh, there are going to be, there are new design computer architectures in the pipeline, uh, only one of which is quantum computers, which we have all been hearing about for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to wonder whether that's actually a scam yeah. because really how many, how many years and how many billions of dollars do you have to put into this before you see some practical results? Exactly. Um, there are other, for other uh, kinds of um, computer uh, designs that might pan out sooner, actually, at the rate things are going, um, that are meant to mimic the, um, the structure of the human brain. And so a lot of the, now what you might find with Western scientific research generally is that it tends to be reductive, trying to um, split things into finer and finer mm -hmm. pieces. And so that now we're, we're, we're even beyond the level of looking at how neurons fire. I mean, it's been well established for a long time about how neurotransmitters uh, cross the synaptic cleft and mm -hmm. you get these, what you might call these little 
um, lightning bolts, mm -hmm. you might say, arcing across our brains. Right. All, and it's really quite wondrous. And, the, and yet, there is still more to it. And even the, the very paradigm of thinking of the brain as a computer could actually be uh, incomplete at best. The, the notion that this thing in our head is a thinking machine is really, you know, it just happens to be, is really, I think, not doing it justice. That, uh, uh, and especially if we don't fully understand what consciousness is. And the, there are materialist assumptions behind the notion that the brain produces consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it, 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 there are other ways of looking at it. For sure. And, uh, the stories that I intend to write, I'm going to be exploring that thing, uh, that topic, uh, not in not directly, but as a matter of course in the in the proceedings, it, it will come out that uh, um, I look at consciousness as a non-local phenomenon, as it is, uh, and that consciousness precedes the physical universe. Mm -hmm. That's it's basic. You could call it native Neoplatonism, mm -hmm. and that's okay. There's other ways of describing it, but the the alternate view, which I believe is the dominant paradigm right now, is that um, matter, for which came into existence for no apparent reason, spontaneously organized itself into forms, which then produced consciousness which then app is capable of apprehending the material phenomena that brought it into being. And I think this is kind of backwards. If, um, and, but the, the, one of the things uh, uh, that may, I also explore in the blog that might be of interest is reality mapping. Yes, mm. I definitely want to get into that. That's, yeah, um, that's basic, it's basic philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, and one of the uh, trends that I've noticed, and I'm sure every you know you and everyone has probably has noticed it one way or another, is that there has been a breakdown of consensus reality, mm -hmm. and last few decades particularly, and it, it seems to be that it's not coming back. That's one of the the old the the old world that we grew up in mm -hmm. is not coming back. And that, and the notion that people can be on the same page about just basic assumptions about what is real. I don't think that's, uh, we can't assume that anymore. Um, and in fact, I'm starting to now wonder whether, um, it's even necessary at this point. It might actually, it, it might be that there, there are two, there are different ways of looking at this. Now I can understand, and uh, I've been looking at uh, trends on social media, in, for instance, um, uh, there are subcultures that are interested in um, finding ideas from the past, you know, old ideologies or old religions, you know, in a sense, digging through the the rubbish of the past century or so to find something that feels solid, 
that they can believe in mm -hmm. because clearly where they're at right now is not satisfactory. And that indeed, you know, this whole postmodern world we live in is, is really not satisfactory for a whole lot of people. And uh, it is, so it's completely natural that people would be looking to the past, wondering, did we take a wrong turn somewhere? Mm. You know, should we, you know, and, and then the question becomes, how far back do you want to go? Right. Yeah. You know, shall we go back to uh, before women had the vote? Is that far back enough? Should we go back to when there was no separation of church and state? Should we go back to monarchy? Was democracy the wrong turn? You know? <laughs> and, how, and, uh, and some will honestly go back to the Enlightenment and say that that was where we took the wrong turn. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be conveniently uh, forgetting that the Enlightenment arose as a reaction to the abuses of power yeah. by the monarchies and the exactly. church or and it was inevitable that that reaction would have to happen and uh it and it has and 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 i cannot deny that we've had we've enjoyed some progress since then i don't think that uh i would be in any way nostalgic for uh, living in the world uh, 200 years ago, let alone, not even 100 years ago, I wouldn't be very content there either. A lot of people would consider that uh, dystopia just an older, <laughs> you know, the the uh, the, the steam-driven version. Yeah, you know? Exactly. <laughs> you know? And and I just go well, and also if you were to have a reset philosophically, would that simply be buying some time. Would you not eventually come back here again? How would you have the outcome different than it by doing it? You know, having this redo of you know of whatever it is, whether it's Christian orthodoxy or uh, or monarchy. Actually, you know, when I I, I used to joke that uh, in my more cynical moments, you know, when I'm, uh, uh, that, uh, well, when I'm optimistic about humanity, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> and when I'm pessimistic about humanity, when I'm pessimistic about humanity, I'm a monarchist. And that I think really, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that actually fits. A lot of people can completely understand where where that's coming from. Sure, you do have to be, and and uh, I have had periods in my life when I have taken anarchy, anarchism uh, seriously as an ideal. Sure, mm. but then recognize, oh, it's it is an ideal because uh, it would appear that majority of people aren't ready for it. And I don't know if they can ever be made ready for it. This is a thing about, and and indeed, uh, the the idea of democracy requires a certain optimism mm -hmm. as well, because sure. you have to believe that people are capable of self governance. And it may be that not all people everywhere at all times are capable of it. No, do and they want to be? This is. Hmm? Nor do they want to be. They might, yeah, they, they don't. They don't yeah, want yeah. to take care of themselves. Yeah, and uh, well, and we so don't live in a democracy. We live in a constitutional republic. So yes, I, I think certainly there's a delegation. 
power. Right. That's but I think one thing that, that we have to consider, Wayne, is the population. Because I think that what the shift has happened with us is that we now have adopted a global view of the world where 200 years ago, you weren't really concerned with what was happening across the pond because you may not be communicating with people that were living in Ireland or England or in Africa. So you didn't really know what was happening to the same degree that we know now. So I think one thing that's influencing kind of this dystopic perspective of the world is we have more information access, but we have less control. Mm, that's, that's a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly there's a, one of the, the, um, one of the things I noticed because, well, partly because I, in a sense, I'm a cultural cultural worker. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a writer, and uh, I would say that one one of the, uh, the curious trends is that there is seems to be there appears to be. I'm not going to say definitely, but there appears to be a trend of um, increasing uh, what I'd call a, um, oh gosh, I, I, I don't know, I would hesitate to use the word decadence. Mm. Increasing, but decadence does apply to certain periods when you can see the, the moral character, you might say. That sounds like an incredibly old fashioned term, but there's this, <laughs> there's this thing about the character of the people that they seem to be more coarse and more vulgar than previous generations. Mm. And it may be that this might be deliberately encouraged. There might, and uh, it would not surprise me. And I'm, I'm certainly, if you have been uh, hanging out with uh, those who've been in contact with Hollywood, you might get the feeling that there's some genuinely sinister people running that mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. And certainly there have been uh, there have been rumors for a long, long time about, for instance, the, the Disney company mm -hmm. uh, and as well as the other major studios and then and the music industry as well. And you get the feeling like, wow, well, OK, are they all run by satanic pedophiles? I don't know. Um, certainly there are people who uh, will do whatever is necessary to get ahead. And that mentality alone tends to drive things towards uh, pandering to the lowest common denominator. And then that becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. It might not even require any kind of uh, diabolical plot orchestrated from the top of some power pyramid. You just let market do the work. Mm. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you have something that is uh, like... Uh, when you the more millions of dollars get invested into a tentpole movie, for instance, mm -hmm. the more everyone involved is inclined to take the least creative risk. Yeah, to do whatever seems to have worked before, and and then that increases the trend towards mediocrity. Yes, exactly. And it's almost like you have to look harder than you. I have to look harder than I used to 
to find anything truly innovative mm -hmm. and original coming out of Hollywood because the stakes are too high now. Yeah. Once you've got people who are now looking at this movie has got to make 200 million at least in its own, you know, otherwise you're not even going to break even. When you're at that point, how, how, how do you get anything truly, um, how does creativity even work its way through that? Yeah. You know, you really, it, to me, it only really happens at uh, when everything is very small scale where, you know, the, the, the amount being gambled is small enough that uh, people are willing to take chances uh, on it. And uh, thank goodness there are still people out there doing that. Um, and for me, I, though, I'm done with Hollywood in the sense that um, I've been hitting my head, head against the wall for many, many more years than uh, perhaps I should have. Uh, I don't know if you've known people who are. I worked in that. In I worked in that field, um, and I do want to. Oh, I do want to touch on oh. that point because I think Hollywood is dead. I think it 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 died oh. a long and painful death that really started. You could say kind of around Pulp Fiction, <laughs> around that time oh. period, and oh. okay. what has okay. changed now is streaming services. So if you want to make a Hollywood film, then you're going to have to go into the formulaic route. You're going to have to rehash a Marvel uh, film. You're going to have to rehash a Star Wars film. You're going to have to kind of buy into that reality. But what's interesting about the streaming mm -hmm. service world is now anyone can make a film. It is. You can't necessarily make a Hollywood film, but look at someone like Greta Gerwig. Mm -hmm. What they've done with her is that mm -hmm. they choose one person and say, okay, this is the person we're going to prop up because this person mm -hmm. fits into this criteria of uh, woke or uh, left-leaning or whatever the agenda is. So that's going to be the person that we prop up to make us look like we are progressive and we are kind of on the cutting edge of mm. filmmaking because she's mm. a woman mm. and she's young. Mm. But yeah. if you have good content, there are myriad places that you can put that content now. I think the difference is yeah. that... Some people want to make films and make art, and some people want to be famous. So I think it depends on which mm -hmm. camp you're mm -hmm. in. If you want to be famous, then you're going to drink the adrenochrome, and you're going to be part of the satanic cult, and you're going to be you're going to be that soulless creature. If you want to make films, you all you need is an iPhone now and a YouTube mm -hmm. channel and you can make a film and you can put it out there and someone will see that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of mm -hmm. where the, the fissure between Hollywood and art has been created. Uh, what do you think about that? Are, are you still interested in making films or are you interested in making blockbuster movies that are Hollywood propelled? Well, at this time, um, because I like the idea of having uh, creative control, mm. the, I've decided I'm going to focus on, on uh, getting short stories and novels published. 
And then if there is enough interest, those could be adapted. Mm. Then the, that means that these, the, the written stories serve as the previous IP. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll allow it to maintain its integrity as if it gets adapted into things like uh, graphic novels mm. or films, TV, TV shows. I'm all in favor of, uh, you know, I can, st- I still th- think like screenwriter in the sense of trying to uh, work out a story visually. Mm. Um, but now I have the luxury of being able to write about a character's inner states much more than I used to. It's a, it's a, strangely liberating experience <laughs> although um, i have to say that i also it's a it's, there's a certain effort involved in writing a book uh that i'm not used to um, in that you have to fill the page with all this prose mm. and you, you have to make it uh you tailor it for a general audience which is different from tailoring it for a script reader right. or a director or an it's a, you know, a screenplay can be much more like a blueprint of instructions. Everybody totally. understands that format. Mm-hmm. And, but you, you can't really write that way for the, the general reader. It's, you're, you're trying to, it's a, you're trying to create pictures in someone's head yeah. and have them feel the feelings ideally. And the, I like the process. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, when I look at the role of creativity in my life, in conjunction with the the philosophizing the i was you know the reality mapping i can see that th- that these are both essential processes you know i think about uh what's you know the nature of reality what's going on here what is our what is our life about and at the same time the creative process allows me to explore those questions and it's kind of like uh what Philip K. Dick was doing with his stories. Um, and I've been reading some of his interviews and also I've seen some of the ones that were, um, that were filmed. Mm-hmm. And I realized his creative process became more aware as he grew older. Mm-hmm. When he first started out in his 20s, I don't think he was fully conscious of all of the synchronicities and the metaphysical themes that he was exploring. Mm-hmm. And it, there are things that, if you look back at his early work, some of it is kind of astonishing because he had that he was having these flashes of insight that make you almost think that he was remote viewing right. another timeline. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He wasn't just he wasn't just making this up, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think about it's 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 almost like a shamanistic vision, I, and I'm floored by it because I do get that. I, I know what that feels like. Wow. And, and uh, the act of creativity is, well, to use a term that he had actually started using later in his life, uh, uh, it's negentropic mm. or negentropy is reverse entropy, mm. just like the cre- uh, creation of life. Mm. You know, life is, acts uh, to create order out of chaos, whereas entropy is order degenerating into chaos. So there are two processes going on at the same time. And creativity is part of, is negentropy. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't really, you can't really have just one 
you have to have both. This is, seems to be the, the, the nature of our um, the world is that it seems to run on polarities in many different ways. And I'm learning gradually how to build that into my reality map. Mm. When I talk about reality map, and some, the nature of it is how it differs, I think, from um, a lot of um, philosophy and theology um, ha has tended to calcify into um, what I call tribal thinking, where uh, whereas uh, reality mapping is meant to change over time because we, you know, one of the things that, well, I've, I grew up Catholic. I don't know if you grew up in a religious environment, either of you, um, but uh, it's certainly, uh, now there are people who can, who can come to a spiritual point of view later in life, even though they didn't grow up with uh, a spiritual tradition. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, they people grow up in a, in a religious household and then they reject it, mm -hmm. and or people go back and forth in the course of their lifetime. And I seem to have done. I have had this kind of circuitous journey, you might say, um, but mainly away from organized religion. And part of the thing that uh, made it unpalatable. And it wasn't just the doctrines of the Catholic Church or the fact that it was a corrupt institution, all, you know, long before I was born. Uh, the pro problem really is that it's, it, it resists being updated. Yeah. It doesn't really want, it, it, it believes all, you know, or, organized religions and political ideologies do not admit error. Mm, yes. They do want to be up, they don't want to be updated they don't want to be modified and they are defining themselves by what they are not and every time they confront a different point of view the immediate instinct is to um find fault mm -hmm. with the other mm -hmm. to find you know try to prove that one's own beliefs are the correct beliefs and the other guy is wrong yeah and this becomes really kind of a lot of the time that becomes really quite pointless. You know, if you ever try to see some something like, you know, a Christian debating an atheist, I mean, to me, that's a complete waste of time. Yeah. They're not even, even on the same page as far as basic assumptions about reality. Why would they even bother? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, because each one of them is going to try to tear the other down. They're not even interested really in comparing their points of view to see is this person possibly right about something? Did yeah. I miss something important here? Exactly. No, they're not even interested remotely. They're not remotely interested in that. And that, that just drives me nuts. So I just prefer to look at reality mapping as a way of approaching this in a more pragmatic way, even though you can get very metaphysical, and I do with my own. I'm not even trying to sell anybody my own reality map because it's much more satisfying to create your own because then you start to examine your axioms the assumptions that under are underpinning your worldview and then you go okay um yeah i mean then you can even the contradictions which on you know sooner or later you'll probably find something that you just go well you know i know that 
that's non-falsifiable and maybe it's irrational, but it works for me. And then, you know, but at least you know that you're not going to try to kid yourself or anybody else about that. I mean, I'm, I could say, well, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a certifiable loon. And yeah, some of the things that I've believed might be completely indefensible and completely unscientific, but oh, well, you know, uh, but we could agree on some things. There are cer certainly, uh, but uh, like one of the things that, that uh, I mean, you know, I, like I said, I don't want to sell my own point of view. It just happens that there are, but reality mapping is an activity that really anybody could learn. I mean, goodness knows, thousands of years ago, back in uh, ancient Greece, ordinary guys were doing this. It doesn't, you don't have to have college education. You just have to be curious and uh, um, just have a few basic pointers about how, you know, uh, it maybe it helps, maybe it looks, to me, it might look basic, because, but only because uh, uh, I went, you know, had some schooling. That kind of helped. Um, like I, um, it wasn't just the Catholic schools, although that helped. Uh, <laughs> ironically, you know, it's one of those situations where uh, uh, I went to a, a Jesuit high school mm. and uh, became. Uh, sufficiently well informed to um, lose my faith. So it wasn't exactly, <laughs> it probably didn't turn out the way they had intended. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, leaving the church at 16 was probably exactly what I needed to do. And uh, then I got into a lot of um, what I'd call, you know, new agey. Uh, modes of thinking, because that was in fashion, you know, we're talking about the late 70s and 80s. And uh, it's also Northern California. Good, mm -hmm. uh, God, no, you know, we're just about the flakiest people in, in California. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I didn't even claim, to, I still don't claim to be any intellectual, you know, I'm just, uh, I just happen to have had some interesting influences, I guess. And, uh, um, but I did, at least in college, I did learn um, critical thinking. And in fact, was a, a teacher's assistant for the Department of Philosophy. Mm. And that, that helped a lot. I didn't even realize at the time what a difference that would make. Um, that uh, my professor, uh, Richard Paul, was one of the leading authorities on uh, critical thinking. And he was very much in favor of it uh, becoming uh, part of the curriculum everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to say that it, it, I, I wish it had become more widespread. Yes. Uh, we could use it now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, we're uh, goodness knows, uh, um, just being able to have, for people to have uh, a nice civilized conversation about what's true and what's real, that's, that's really becoming difficult now. It shouldn't be. It should be the easiest thing in the world to, to you know, you could be able, should be able to hang out with anybody anywhere and uh, not have to worry about, you know, feeling like uh, um, you're suddenly going to have to defend yourself 
because it's like you know, <laughs> you know, some some somebody might peg you as like the enemy. It's exactly. like because you, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, hey, wait a minute, wait, we're just trying to figure out. Can we just try to figure out what's going on here? Yeah, maybe exactly. you know, put our heads together, we might be able to get somewhere, build some bridges. And, uh, this is what yeah. I love. I'm in university right now, and I'm taking a um, cognitive uh, psychology class. And just to kind of circle back to that discussion about consciousness, I am utterly fascinated by the fact that in 2023, we are still having the discussion about the nature of consciousness and what that mm, is. Yeah. So I just did this assignment and we had to look at it from five different perspectives, the philosophical perspective, oh. uh, neuroscience, linguistics, philosophy and psychology and what each one right. of those perspectives would say the nature of consciousness is. What oh. I was so interested in was actually doing the research into that and how a neuroscientist would mm -hmm. map consciousness compared to a philosopher. Mm -hmm. What if right. you had to land wow. on a perspective, what do you opine consciousness? What is the nature of consciousness? Yeah, well, one, well, I, I would say, you know, th there's a funny thing about when I w originally started developing my own reality map, which I have to admit that involved um, consulting what some people would call uh, one spirit guide, mm. or um, I, I hesitate to use terms that sound like catchphrases like higher self. And right. I, I use the term inner guru because that hasn't been um, popularized yet. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> you know, then I'll have to think of something else. But um, the uh, the into what you might call the uh, an intuition, a very uh, a wiser and more developed part of myself emerged um, within a few weeks after my mother passed away mm. in 2018. And uh, it was the kind of, that was one of those, mm, you might call life-changing uh, periods. If you've had parents die or loved ones die, you already know what this is like. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things will start developing You'll, you things will start emerging in yourself you weren't anticipating and in this case um i was li literally waking up at uh you know in the wee hours like three in the morning and um listening to um i wouldn't call call it a voice in my head but it really did seem like me talking to myself but it was not my everyday self talking hmm. to me Mm, interesting. And this person, this version of me had things to say about, uh, and, and I had originally had a question in mind. It was a burning question that sometimes has comes up whenever somebody passes away, which is what happens to us after we die? Mm -hmm. And because, you know, I've had, you know, both my parents are gone and my, be my best friend uh, passed away back in 2011. That's uh, and 
these are the kind of losses that make you ask questions like that. What yeah. you know, not just what happens to me, but rather what happens to all of us. Yes. Because I mean, oh, even if we go on living a long time, we'll continue losing people, and that you know, you do wonder, uh, does anything remain? Mm-hmm. If it, what dies with the body and what rem- what endures, if anything, this is and much to my surprise, this. Uh, this voice, this inner guru, started to teach me about um, the the nature of the structure of reality. It was like a direct answer to my question, but contained with. I had a feeling that contained within this um, walkthrough of the of the structure of consciousness and reality, I would have my answer. And I've been kind of. And it's not like it would all be laid out. It, not, it was not going to be just handed to me on a platter. Mm-hmm. I would be given enough information that I could then figure it out myself. And then it could be refined further, which I guess is a, a creative way to do it rather than, you know, because a certain amount should be left up to the individual to, to follow up. And, to, and then you'll find out just... Um, how uh, what you're attached to and how honest you can be with yourself. Because a lot of people, when sometimes people adopt a belief system, they're doing it to, to, um, to use it as a security blanket yes. to make themselves feel better. Yeah. And supposing you could, one could just set aside that need for the moment, not worry about, you know, is this going to make me feel better about, you know, my impending death or the death of other people. Um, and, but having done that, I recognize that uh, we have that selfhood, the experience of being alive uh, is, that's one form of consciousness that I believe is, arises out of other forms of consciousness. That is to say, and that, well, one of the things that the inner guru told me about was the, what is, is called the multidimensional ecosystem of consciousness. Now, you mm. can abbreviate that MEC for short, but the concept of an ecosystem, at least, is very familiar, that it is a chain of relationships linking all life forms mm-hmm. and their, the environment that supports them. And that the characteristic of it is that it is completely self-regulating. This, uh, the ecosystem requires no supervision. It just, life just generates life and it exchanges energy to stay alive. And some of these exchanges, a lot of the exchanges are involuntary, at least on the level of biology, you know, um, creatures consuming other creatures. Uh, it's not always, you know, sentient creatures that are getting eaten, but whatever is going on usually involves exchanges Mm -hmm. and that all of it is made of consciousness ultimately. And it all comes from the same source. Now, the the remarkable thing is that when we look at nature, that was, you know, in a sense, you could say that's the way of nature. And it's, uh, and it includes us we're, you know, like a small part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
is you could have a complete worldview based just upon that. Uh, however, the fact is that the dynamics are basically not human. And that means that they, it does not have, not only does it not need supervision, it also doesn't require ethics. Ethics is a uniquely human thing. Mm -hmm. it, it does not exist elsewhere in nature. It has it just it would just get in the way mm -hmm. and us and later on my inner guru uh clued me in about another uh concept that goes alongside it or it is enmeshed with the ecosystem of consciousness which is the hierarchy of creators now the whole notion of a hierarchy of creators would naturally set off alarm bells for somebody who'd grown up in western religion and uh had been hoping to get away from anything that sounded like some kind of oppressive power structure in the cosmos. Oh God, give me a break. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's like monarchy all over again, yeah. just extending it up into the metaphysical into the, monarchy. Uh, into the... And, uh, but I couldn't just dismiss it. It's not just, and I don't believe it is just some egregore, but I do think it, you know, conceptually it's kind of, Maybe the problem is that is that we have to use language to try to describe these things, and mm. uh, part of it, part of what we're really trying to describe is beyond words, and that's you know, so in a sense, our reality mapping has to incorporate the fact that yeah, some things where there's always going to be a relationship between the things that we can describe and the things we can't describe with words. Just as then there is also the relationship between what we what we know and what we don't know. The the unknown is always going to be there. And you can either be dismissive of it and pretend it's not there, which I think is a mistake, or you could just sort of like recognize, okay, there's this kind of dance going on at all times between the known and the unknown, between the waking life and the dream life, mm -hmm. between, you know. The land of the living and the land of the dead, that kind of, and that's, um, so again, uh, and indeed there is, I believe there's this intimate relationship between the, the ecosystem of consciousness and this hierarchy of creators. And it isn't necessarily just the creator and the creation, which is the classic uh, duality that underpins uh, Western theology. It could be that, well, um, Philip Dick was actually thinking along these lines when he was, when you, you, you know about his Pink Bame experience when yes. 1974, oh, when yes. having this and he just, you know, his mind just sort of like blew open <laughs> and he he'd spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what happened. And he was just literally churning out reams of paper for years years uh and uh talking with uh, theologians and reading and reading and trying to figure out you know was there anything that corresponded in human experience that could explain what he was going through mm -hmm. and i would say that uh one of the now a lot of folks would say that uh he uh got interested in gnosticism which i think gnosticism is a good template it isn't the only one I think that was one that he took seriously, and I take it seriously, but I don't. I'm invested in it. Mm -hmm. There, are, because there again, 
I don't want to get into a commuted to a system that isn't amenable to modification. Mm -hmm. You know, as we are living, as we are experiencing, we are supposedly having novel experiences. Some things are going to be universal, of course, but if you're if you go through your life in a unique way, you'll probably learn something that you can incorporate into your reality map. Reference points that you have discovered. And if your reality map doesn't at some point, your reality map might have to be discarded, mm -hmm. even if it does not match your observed reality. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm in, in favor of, I'm, I don't even worry anymore about whether uh, we have consensus reality. Mm. It would be more productive, especially at this time in our history, since we seem to be in a phase of disintegration anyway, to lean into the anarchy side of things. And work out our own personal uh, view, you know, and also taking into account what's already been discovered and thought about so we don't have to reinvent things. I mean, certainly it, it is very helpful to look at what has already been discussed and written about, uh, you know, from the, from the Greeks onwards. It, mm -hmm. it wasn't all a complete of time i'm sure <laughs> can you let people know where they can find yeah. your work where where they can what? where they can find your work where they can find your your subject oh okay well there's basically the blog that which is called the open sanctum at uh let me uh this the um the url is open sanctum.substack.com okay. fantastic so uh and i think it's pretty easy to find now yeah, and hope there's it's all free right now, and I would like to keep it free. The if I decide to introduce anything, a separate section for for the science fiction, I might do that. Um, it depends on how things work out with publishing. If I'd like to get stuff printed on paper, old old fashioned. Oh, that'd be great. Style. Cool. Okay, I would like that. It would be nice. So anyway, I'll let you know how things turn Please out. Do. And uh, I would love it if people come, you know, check out the blog, Open Sanctum, because I think it'll keep you busy at the very least. And hopefully it's, it'll be uh, thought provoking. Yeah. That's the idea anyway. It's wonderful. It's yes, really uh, great. You're, you're a great writer. Oh, I'm so glad. To, I'm so thrilled to meet you, too. Yes. You, you know, I feel. You know, you're my tribe. You Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was fantastic getting to know you. Yes. Uh, and okay. Maybe we can have you on yeah. again in January or February. We can schedule something for you to come back on. That sounds that sounds cool. cool. I would like that. Yeah, we're taking and hopefully we'll hopefully have some sunlight over yeah. here. It's kind of dim today. <laughs> but uh, you know. Well, cool. In any case, uh, so in any case, uh, have yourself a good day. You too, and, Wayne. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing this uh, when when you get this pu published. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, let you know. Is, uh, I'll let you know when it comes. This is a on. very good conversation. Thank Likewise. you. It was an so, honor, anyway. an honor, and a yeah. privilege to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh gosh, oh gosh, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, any case, I wish you great success. I hope that lots of people check out your, uh, you know, your podcast. I think you need you deserve a much bigger audience, and so uh, you know, uh, you know about. 
promotion. Yes. Everybody's got some, you know, trying to get those eyeballs. So, exactly. Uh, exactly. you know, more power to you. I hope you Likewise. get that. So, Likewise. Anyway, I'm going to get going here. All right. All righty. Take care. That was a really wonderful conversation. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, we didn't really talk too much about his blog. Um, but from what I read, he's a great writer and really, really interesting take and subject matter. Uh, we also didn't cover any of his acting career. Mm -hmm. I would have been curious. I did not IMDb Wayne before we had him on. So I don't know what he did in the acting world. We didn't cover anything too much. We covered a lot of things cursorily. Yeah. Cursorily? Cursorily? That works. <laughs> a little <It's> bit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was a very wonderful organic conversation. Yes. I I, uh, I love that he lives in Northern California and is kind of, you know... <laughs> It's I have this weird take on things where anyone that lives in this kind of hyper woke, hyper leftist uh, community that happens to be um, not necessarily of that ilk. I really respond to that because I think it's very easy to get in this culty mindset when you live in a place like San Francisco and it's easy to kind of get swept up into the that kind of cult of personality of of living in that that ecosystem yeah um i think i was uh it's just been a very packed week so i didn't get around to researching him until the last couple of days and i was partially kind of panicked by that but at the same time, I took him to be a guy where you could just sort of freewheel it and it would go plenty of interesting places. And that's exactly what happened. He's a very kind person and has got a little a very interesting uh, observations about things that are going on, much similar to the way that we look at things, but in, you know, in his own way um, and then takes that to a different place. So it's always it's always good to, as he said, talk to other weirdos. Like, yeah, yeah, and he wasn't snobby. <laughs> Not you at know, all. I know. Not at all. I know a lot of people from that part of the world who tend to kind of have this kind of snobby attitude of like uh, too too cool for school, and you know, know it all, been there, done it all, yeah. and he just he approaches the the subjects that he's writing about with curiosity and very much a a sense of um earnestness and humbleness that i respond really well to yeah i agree and i felt very excited once we started talking anytime and this has happened a couple of times with people where they have it's almost felt like they were reading my mind where they said something that was either something that we had just discussed right before the interview or they start the conversation 
off on a foot that is the foot I wanted to start the conversation mm-hmm. off with. So that's always exciting because I'm like, wow, this is great. There's some synergy happening. Yeah, and it was one of those conversations that just kind of came out of the gate running. Like it didn't start. Usually it's like there's a little before talk, chitter chatter, yeah. and then like, okay, you want to get into the conversation? Let's do it. And then I just shoot off the first question and then it can go wherever or it can just I can go down my line of questions, but it just kind of hit the ground running and I never really asked much of anything on my question list. Uh, and that's always a sign to me of a good conversation that doesn't like, you know, it never gets to the point where there's an awkward silence. So you go, uh, and then you end up asking something that has nothing to do with what you just got done talking about. This very organically flowed from one subject to another. And it's always a good sign, too, when I'm constantly scribbling down notes. You didn't even have your notebook this time. I didn't. It's over there. And I just forgot to reach you, for it. You didn't need it. I, you know, I, I'm i always thinking of different ways that we can improve or add different dimensions to what we're doing. And... This was one of those conversations where I was thinking this would be so cool to be in the same room with Wayne and (sighs) this is going to sound super cheesy, but like cook or do something like cook a meal with him and talk while we're cooking and then sit down and and eat a meal or, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I like the idea of taking someone like Wayne or Jerry Marzinski or, you know, myriad, Diana Pasolka, you know, people that we've spoken to that have such a wide volume of interests and knowledge and putting them in a different context, like kind of a dinner party type of a context and then having a dialogue in that kind of a context. And he would be a great person for that because he seems like the type of person who would never be short of interesting conversation, interesting dialogue, something that you could talk about, you know, what he does for fun, you know, how he hangs out, like what, what are, what are the things that he does outside of writing and research? Um, and I always feel a little kind of nostalgic about those periods of my life when I was able to have dinner parties with people and it was an interesting group of people. And there haven't been many, there's been phases of life where that's happened. And it's always really fun to do that. And I miss that. I miss having, you know, this very disparate group of people come together and then kind of sitting people together that have really nothing in common and then just kind of sitting back and seeing what happens with that. And so in my perfect world of the podcast, it would be great to have this as kind of like a tour or a traveling road show where we did that, where we went to different guests' homes and hung out with them for a night and you know, or an uncomfortably long amount of time, like two weeks. <laughs> like, say we're just going to stay two or three days and then <laughs> go. Well, I mean, thank you so much for your hospitality. Um, 
would you, I mean, would it be out of place to ask maybe if we could just stay to the end of the week and then just keep postponing it? Or just say, I've already put in a change of address. <laughs> There's a guy that I ran across when I was doing research for the upcoming, when I don't know when that's going to happen now since it got rescheduled, the Ada Akpala interview, this guy named Adam Coleman and he does a podcast that I am not recalling the name of right now, um, but it is going to his guest's house and having a meal while they're talking. So it's kind of the same thing. They didn't cook, but it was prepared, and that's where they started the interview was with the meal. Yeah, it's a good idea. It's a great idea. I, I just think there's there's ways to morph what we're doing Um into the other areas of our interest, um, which is filmmaking and um, cooking shows for me. Connecting with real people. Connecting. I think that's, what, that's yeah. what it's about, really, is what it's about. Like, I do believe there's some community establishment going on here, yeah. um, especially after the last three years. But I think it needs, to, it's important that it translates into the real yeah. 3D realm. Yes. I mean, yes. it's important to make psychological and spiritual connections outside of that. But I think meeting face to face and exchanging that energy that way is, 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 um, uh, ideal, the most ideal way of doing yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the things I love about the Lord of the Rings films is, the bar scenes <laughs> that sounds so just like non sequitur, but you know, these moments where, you know, Gandalf, they meet Gandalf in a, in a pub somewhere and they're having this, you know, low toned conversation. I just love it. And I love the idea of doing that, of, you know, meeting up with people in, comfortable environments and just kind of seeing where the conversation goes, where it's not kind of this formal thing of, of like, we have questions, they answer the questions. It's just, there's some different alchemy when it's a face to face thing and you're actually speaking to someone in a place they feel comfortable. Truthers in cars getting absinthe, uh, <laughs> sort of like that, <laughs> only much more long form. <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah that works that's fine yeah i like it yeah I although like that it. i wouldn't that wouldn't be my substance of choice or but dmt or sure no talking much talking there smoking a blunt yeah, sure <laughs> um so we can <laughs> when when we have the budge and the time to do this and i will have breaks throughout <laughs> my academic uh, educational career. Um, it would be great to do that. Like to take a road trip and, and go to Colorado or go to New Mexico or go to some of these places where there are a few of our people, um, go to Texas and see Emily and, you know, just go, go to different places and hang out with the people I consider our people yeah. and, you know, but be in their environment as exactly. opposed to this this thing that we do, mm -hmm. which I love, by the way. Yeah, I agree. I think that would be definitely something to move towards. Yeah, sure. and we're, 
I just read some silly meme that said writing writing it down um, is fifty percent of manifesting something. So I feel the same about saying it, like just mm-hmm. saying it out loud. This is what we want to do, yep. and this this kind of makes it a puts it on the radar of the the universe, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Um, there was so like it was also one of those conversations where the guest has a lot to say and the roller coaster moves so quickly that it's, sometimes it's hard to, you know, there's lots of things you want to comment on, but either they get thrown to the wayside or you just move on to bigger and better things. Uh, and there were so many uh, corridors that I wanted to detour into, um, but I think that will come with further conversations, uh, which I definitely foresee having with Wayne. So yeah, I have you to it, Wayne. Yeah. I love talking about, especially stuff that I'm studying. I love talking about neuroscience and uh, consciousness and what the, the nature of that is because for, for as sophisticated as, the scientific method is and scientific exploration is science still has not answered these very basic questions. Like what is reality? What is consciousness? How, how are these things, how do these things manifest in the brain? Like we're still mapping so much. And so that's a very interesting, uh, corridor to explore and examine, but even going into kind of the historical aspects of paganism and ritual and magic and how all of that uh, morphed and was stamped out by religion and how the church was involved. I just took a class in a women's studies class. It's very much about that and how, how, how that shift happened. And so we could have spoken for two hours about that one subject because there's so much rich terrain uh, when it comes to that, that lore. And, you know, especially in, in pre-modern Europe, there was so much activity with the church and, you know, invention of the printing press and how, you know, before that, if you wanted to read the Bible you couldn't, you had to go to church and the church was basically the arbiter of any religious text. And that's, it was really based on someone's interpretation. And so I, I just find that very fascinating. And, you know, we, we could have delved deeper into movies and Wayne's, Wayne's, um, interest in film and, the the um, aspects of filmmaking and writing that have really excited him and the direction that he's gone in his blog, uh, I would highly recommend that you check his blog out because yes. he's got some really great posts. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the address will be in the episode notes. So for sure, for sure. He, uh, I think he just started it within the last three or four months too. And he's only been on... I mean, the only ones I've heard him on podcast-wise are Aeon Byte, um, Grimerica, and one other one that I'm not thinking of right now. Um, so, yeah, it's like he just hit on the scene, but he's such a wealth of information, and he's obviously has a lot of experience under his belt. So, 
I look forward to hearing more stories from Wayne. Yeah, we have to we have to make a pilgrimage to Canada to see Graham and Darren. That would be definitely on the list mm-hmm. of people to uh, interact with that we love and and we love their work and what they're doing and get interview Darren while he's dressing a deer or cleaning one of his guns. So I'm in, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. Absolutely. Yeah. Good times. Great taste. Potentially. Less filling. <laughs> okay. On that note, uh, if you would like to get a hold, oh, first of all, thank you so much for devoting your precious attention to listening to this or watching this podcast. It means a lot to us. Hopefully you were able to get something positive um, or that it sets your brain in motion in a way that maybe you hadn't explored before. Anything good. That's what we're aiming for. So uh, thank you all so much for listening and thank you those on Locals and Patreon for helping to support this podcast. You're very much appreciated. Uh, If you'd like to contact us for guest suggestions or recipes or whatever, Gossip, Hollywood Gossip, uh, The Melt Podcast at ProtonMail.com or... You can always reach me at Hunter-Muse at ProtonMail.com. Thank you so much for watching or listening. We love you. We do. Goodbye. Thanks so much for making it this far. If you've liked what you've heard and are thus inspired to contribute to the well-being of the melt, there are a few easy ways to do that. The most tangible being financially, which can be achieved by clicking the Locals or Patreon link in the episode notes, and then you will be led through the process of starting your monthly subscription for a mere $5 a month. This will give you access to exclusive episodes, full-length episodes, and you can participate in our monthly Melt meetups, where we can congregate together as a community and often get a chance to chat with some of our guests more intimately. 
Another way to help out would be to go to wherever it is that you listen to The Melt and leave a favorable review or rating. You can also spread the word via sharing or recommendation to friends and family, either in person or virtually. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.